Welcome back to J.I. Pearl's the Gastroenterology and Hepatology Literature Review Podcast, where I crack open the journals, read the articles, so you don't have to. This is episode 35 for the month of October of 2019, and we'll try to keep on schedule. So if you like what you hear, go to iTunes and leave a review, or go to your media device of choice and leave a review there. It helps others discover the podcast. And also just spread the word. We are almost at 5,000 regular listeners. And if you have articles you think should be covered on the podcast, please send them to info at GI Pearls or hit me up on Twitter at GI underscore Pearls. Thanks again. And now let's go to the journals. The proactive drug level monitoring for biologics in patients with IBD is inching closer and closer to pretty much being algorithm driven. For better or for worse, therapeutic drug monitoring is here and the latest gurus of this approach came up with some summary of their meeting on the topic published in CGH. I will just highlight what I felt were the most important points. Almost everyone agreed that it is appropriate to get drug and antibody levels at the end of induction, at least once during maintenance, and at the end of induction with biologics, and during confirmed secondary loss of response. And that's true at least for anti-TNF drugs. With vedolizumab, things were completely different. Only 15% of the meeting attendants agreed that you should test for levels at the end of induction. And they waffled on whether we need to test VEDO levels during maintenance. But it was okay to check during loss of response to VEDO. Same story with ustekinumab, kind of all over the place. So now let's talk about concentrations a bit. One important note, only infliximab has a threshold of anti-drug antibody levels. Others don't have enough data for it yet. So minimal trough for the drug level should be greater than 3, and ideally more than 7 micrograms per ml. And this is associated with good chance of mucosal healing. This is at week 14. Another suggestion is not to give up on infliximab unless concentration is above 10. Then if you don't have a response, it's probably a lost cause when the concentration is above 10. Speaking of anti-infliximab antibodies, cutoff for high titus for answer assay is 10, Rita screen is 200, and I4MTX LISA tracker is 200. Adalimumab minimum drug concentration to aim is above 5 at week 14. I'll stop here because these are just numbers to you, but there are more useful tidbits in the paper, so go see it, especially if you're doing this therapeutic drug monitoring bit. Keep in mind that these are all consensus or opinion statements. And to drive that point home, I really encourage you to read Stefan Schreiber editorial on what the Europeans think about the whole therapeutic drug monitoring business. I think it will give you a pause. It sure did for me. An interesting paper appeared in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Title is Continuous Anticoagulation and Cold Snare Polypectomy versus Heparin Bridging and hot snare polypectomy in patients on anticoagulants with sub-centimeter polyps. So always a hot topic. I think cold snare polypectomy is having a moment currently. But more importantly, what do we do with bridging? Nobody really knows. What makes this a bit of a weird study? European guidelines already recommend using cold snare for polyps less than 1 centimeters. So here they did a randomized trial of continuing anticoagulation using a cold snare versus using a hot snare and heparin bridge interruption of regular anticoagulation. I found it interesting to see a Japanese study which quoted European guidelines published in the American Journal. I guess the world is round after all. Conclusion here is that cold snare polypectomy while continuing anticoagulation is safer than hot snare polypectomy with a bridge. But remember, this was an open-labeled trial. 
that looked at two factors at the same time. So I don't think this paper should be a practice-changing paper, since the vast majority of sub-centimeter polyps should be removed with a cold snare anyway, even the European guidelines recommended. But maybe it gives us some information on what the heck we're supposed to be doing with larger polyps, since many docs out there use hot snare to remove them. And the hope is there that you don't leave any tissue behind, maybe. Here, hot snare polypectomy, the risk of bleeding is higher, a reinforcement of the fact we kind of knew already. Okay, this one is a bombshell of an investigation. It turns out that taking vitamin D supplement to prevent bone loss is futile. When a large study showing this came out a few months ago, people said, oh, wait a minute, you didn't give them enough of a dose. So here's a trial of a high-dose vitamin D to improve bone density and improve bone strength. In this randomized trial published in JAMA, they randomized 300 patients to different doses of vitamin D, 400, 4,000, and 10,000 units a day. Then they looked at how much calcium was in the tibia and the radius three years later. Conclusion is maybe surprising to many people. Taking vitamin D resulted in statistically significant lower radial bone mineral density at higher doses. At lower doses, it didn't make any difference, but certainly did not lead to stronger bones. So now low dose doesn't do anything, high dose doesn't do anything, and maybe even lower your bone density. What are we supposed to do now, especially in the light of this negative dose-response relationship? Many other aspects of vitamin D data have been extrapolated from older studies showing possible benefit of taking vitamin D supplement. And no one is denying an association between lower vitamin D levels and many deadly conditions. But maybe the answer is just a lot more obvious. We're just not good at looking at and eliminating confounders. How often do you scope patients who tell you that they have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or another connective tissue disease? The risk of perforation is higher in those patients, but how much higher? This next paper from the Red Journal gives us some numbers, and it's interesting. They looked at prevalence of perforation on colonoscopy or Flexig in patients with heritable connective tissue diseases. Perforation rates for Marfan's were at zero for afterendoscopy. For EDS, Ehlers-Danlos, which as you know has several subtypes, and which subtype had the most perforations? It was the vascular EDS with 9.4%, which is crazy high. Hypermobility EDS was only at 0.6%, as was the classical EDS. Now, the big question is, if the rates of colon cancer are dropping, maybe this subpopulation shouldn't be screened for colon cancer, especially the vascular subtype, which has a perforation of 9.4%, which is higher than their risk of colorectal cancer. I wonder if we know the colon cancer rates in patients with vascular EDS. Is it higher? Maybe it's very low. We don't know. It was interesting that in this study, only 15% of patients with vascular EDS had polyps. So who knows? The authors of this study rightfully suggest that FIT and Cologuard should be used first in patients with these conditions. Another bombshell came from ASGE, maybe not as big of a bombshell as the vitamin D, but these are the new guidelines for Barrett's esophagus screening and surveillance from ASGE. These guidelines are very short because it's only for screening and surveillance, not for treatment. I think they are very informative to look at, and you should pay special attention to the strength of recommendations and quality of the evidence. It really gives you an idea of where we are when it comes to diagnosing and screening people for Barrett's esophagus. So here are the statements from the guidelines. In patients with non-dysplastic Barrett's esophagus, surveillance is recommended. 
No word here as to how often you need to do surveillance, but if you look at the body of the guidelines, you see that there's a consensus that you should do this three to five years. Two, when it comes to screening, no good evidence here, so screen only those at high risk, meaning family history or GERD plus one other risk factor. Three, you should routinely use chromoendoscopy, including virtual chromo and Seattle protocol biopsy sampling. I think most scopes today have narrowband imaging or some sort of a function like that, and that's probably enough to do the chromo part. Four, for surveillance, do not use confocal laser instead of chromo and Seattle biopsies. Five, for patients with high-grade dysplasia, don't use EUS to look for mucosal versus submucosal disease. And there's only two more left. 6a, this is the big one. For known or suspected Barrett's esophagus, the guidelines recommend using Watts 3D in addition to routine Seattle biopsies. And what Watts 3D is, is a set of brushes that you brush the mucosa with, then the contents of the brush are smeared on a slide and sent for DNA analysis as well. And using proprietary algorithm, the company sends you a report suggesting if there is Barrett's without dysplasia or with dysplasia and how severe it is. And 6B, there's no good evidence to use volumetric laser endomicroscopy. So at the end of the day, the only new thing here is that don't use any fancy technology except when it comes to Watts 3D. And these recommendations are conditional. Big question based on these guidelines, what the heck are we supposed to do if Watts 3D is positive and this new tech disagrees with just old regular biopsies? Do you go back to surveillance? Which algorithm are you supposed to follow now? Or do you just ablate these people right away? Speaking of new technologies, one more thing is not clear to me is why so much energy is devoted to figuring out different ways to look for Barrett's. And truly, are we making a difference with all this stuff? Remember all those papers I mentioned about how maybe what we're doing here with Barrett's is all lead time bias. Who knows? But for now, the new kid in the block, Watts 3D sampling, seems to be a thing. Treatment options for gastroparesis are very limited. Thankfully, most patients we see have a few things that make their gastroparesis worse that can be fixed, such as better glucose control, exercise, weight loss. But for some patients, doing those things still doesn't fix the problem, and sometimes there's nothing left to fix. And they still have very debilitating symptoms, so we push prokinetics on these patients, but the data for prokinetics isn't very good. Can we use something else? Procalipride, also known on TV as Motegrity, that is approved for chronic idiopathic constipation, has in the past been shown to increase gastric emptying, so why can't we use that? So in a randomized placebo-controlled crossover study of 34 patients who had gastroparesis and gotten Procalipride versus placebo, this is the paper, the outcome measures were quality of life questionnaire, and conclusion was that four weeks of Procalipride significantly improved symptoms and quality of life and enhanced gastric emptying. Let's take a closer look and see what improved and what didn't. Nausea, fullness, reflux got better, but apparently pain and discomfort didn't. Considering that procalipride costs something like 500 bucks a month, if not more, I'm not sure if there is a vast improvement that we can't really achieve with other means. But it is hard to deny the improvement in actual gastric emptying times for solids. So I'm sure there's a subgroup of patients that can benefit from this, but how widely used this will be, I'm not sure. Going back to Barrett's, let's say you do an upper endoscopy, find a few tongues of Barrett's, you do a biopsy, maybe even a Watts 3D, find no dysplasia, patient is not a smoker, on a low-dose PPI, no family history, 
when do you tell them to come back? One year, three years, five years? Remember that the guidelines clearly state, have them come back in three to five years. This study from Sachin Waney out of Colorado looked at GI Quick Registry, which everybody uses these days, and they looked how often endoscopists actually follow these guidelines. The good news is that more than half of the people actually get their surveillance recommendations correctly, but 30% of patients still end up with endoscopies too soon. Factors associated with earlier recommendations are older folks, black race, and if Barrett's is more extensive. I think the docs are only partly at fault here. I think the guidelines have to burden some of the blame here, especially the new guidelines which recommend using biopsies and Watts3D, which will actually suggest that we ought to do more, not less, when it comes to surveillance. And another thing is when you recommend an interval, something more rigid. Instead of three to five years, stick to your guns and say five years solid. How about that? This next study is a bit of a surprise. I recently started doing anorectal manometry, and though initially I was kind of approaching it as something of a foo-foo thing to do, especially when I was a fellow, these days I've changed my mind about it and really find it a very useful tool. So there are a few good studies evaluating the treatment of fecal incontinence. This one is an interesting study. The study compared the efficacy of anorectal manometry assisted by feedback versus lapiramide or placebo. They looked at 300 or so women who were given placebo and education, placebo plus biofeedback, lapiramide plus education, or lapiramide plus biofeedback, and then looked at 24 weeks and found that there was no difference between any of the groups. Key here is that the participants had a normal stool consistency, but they did have incontinence that was bad enough to seek treatment. It was interesting that 80% of placebo patients who received education alone improved, and almost 90% of the people in loperamide group improved as well. Ultimately, this was a study of how well loperamide works to control incontinence, and it seems to work a bit better than just education of patients about urge to go, training bowel habits, etc. I think another study would be in order, where they randomized patients with significant abnormalities found on anorectal manometry to a pamphlet versus biofeedback. I bet there'll be a difference there. I think the best approach is an individualized combination of education by feedback and sometimes a lapiramide or two. On the heels of the fact that vitamin D supplementation doesn't seem to do anything, and in fact seem to worsen your bone strength, back in March a study was published showing that a randomized trial of PPIs in postmenopausal healthy women found no significant difference among groups in changes in bone mineral density, PTH, serum or urine levels of minerals. So why is that we think that PPIs reduce bone mineral density? Is it absorption of calcium? Is it the vitamin D deficiency worsening? Toshihiro Sugiyama wrote a letter to Gastro, and this is in the letter to the editor section in response to publications, suggesting that the answer lies in physical activity. We all know that no matter how well you control for variables, PPI users are generally sicker, have more medical conditions, and the authors of the original article seem to agree. And this is a quote from the author's reply. Overall, the strength of association between PPI use and adverse outcomes in the studies are quite modest and not demonstrated consistently. Therefore, one can never be sure of the relationship between PPI and fracture noted in observational studies. These data are reminiscent of the belief that hormonal therapy was beneficial in postmenopausal women based solely on observational studies. And one more quote, the results of our trial instead suggest that PPI therapy marks individuals who, 
owing to their health conditions, are more likely to sustain an osteoporotic fracture. And they go on further to say that just because you own a PPI doesn't mean you should get a DEXA scan, basically. Couldn't agree more. So maybe we're one step closer to the end of the PPI hysteria. Let's talk about intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy. It's not very common, but happens to be the most common liver disease associated with pregnancy, with prevalence as high as 5% in certain locations. There is even a familial subtype where the ABCB4, the adenosine triphosphate binding cassette, subfamily B, member 4 gene, which encodes the multidrug resistant MDR3 protein, and that's the gene involved in a subtype called PFIC3. Try to remember that one. Hopefully the board's question writers will be merciful and not make you memorize this stuff. But you can pimp your fellows on this. Intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy usually presents with intense itching and abnormal aminotransferases. And you can measure bile acids. And if they are over 40, you have your diagnosis. Since bile acids can cross the placenta, they can go into the fetus and accumulate there. That increases the risk of stillbirth, birth complications, and NICU admissions of the newborn. The higher the total bile acid levels in the blood are, the worse it is for the baby. So naturally, it would be great to get those levels down. Can we do this with some medicines? Ursidioxycholic acid is what most folks were using to try to do this, but does this really work? By the way, how does Urso work anyway? It upregulates the bile acid transporters, and this leads to more excretion of bile acids. So how about trying this in obstetric cholestasis? The next randomized trial was finally published in The Lancet, and unfortunately, it is bad news. It does not really improve outcomes. This was a double-blind, multicenter, randomized placebo-controlled trial, ran at over 30 hospitals in England and Wales, and women with cholestasis were randomized to ursa versus placebo. Primary outcome was composite of perinatal death, preterm delivery, or NICU admission. And unfortunately, there was no difference. But it's not all bad news. It probably still reduces pruritus which is worth something. And this new trial did prove that this Urso is safe and there were no drug-related adverse events. So we should probably use Urso for good reasons. And those reasons should be clear. We're doing this to relieve pruritus and possibly prevent fetal complications, but probably not. Delivery is still the best treatment for this. Oh, how much I love bismuth, don't you? So versatile, so inexpensive. This study looked at over 400 patients with acute non-bloody diarrhea in Karachi, Pakistan, and compared bismuth subsalicylate versus placebo to see how many of these patients ended up needing antibiotics. And of course, the bismuth group required less antibiotics, 16% in the placebo group and 9% in the bismuth group. From what I hear, in places like Pakistan, it is not uncommon to give antibiotics for acute diarrheal illness, so this study shows that we should probably give less antibiotics. So hooray for bismuth again. We all know that sodas and so-called soft drinks are killing us. How bad of a problem is it though? JAMA Internal Medicine published a paper of population-based cohort from Europe, looking at exposure to sugary beverages and mortality. If you drank two or more glasses of the stuff a day, you are more likely to die. Hazard ratio of 1.17 for soft drinks, 1.26 for artificially flavored drinks, and 1.08 for sugar-sweetened drinks. These deaths do include digestive disease deaths, but let's not split hairs here. I guess this is more evidence that people should drink black coffee instead of soft drinks, like me, maybe 12 cups a day, like me. So it's time to talk about the elephant in the New England Journal. In fact, two elephants. 
In one of the October issues of the New England Journal, there are two papers related to ulcerative colitis. Both are from Bruce Sands, and one is the result of the Unify study where they looked at ustekinumab in ulcerative colitis, and the other one is comparison of vedolizumab versus adalimumab for ulcerative colitis. So let's take a look at these real quick. The first one, I don't think there's much to say as far as I can see. So ustekinumab appears to work in moderate to severe ulcerative colitis. They looked at 8-week induction and 44-week maintenance therapy for over 900 patients in the trial. We will just jump to the 44-week end of the trial to see the comparison of patients who have responded. And here, about 45% of patients in remission in the placebo arm, and between 68 and 71% of patients in the ustekinumab arm achieving remission. By the way, there were two ustekinumab arms, one with ustekinumab every 12 weeks versus every 8 weeks. That sounds very impressive for maintenance of clinical response. Another interesting tidbit here was that only 4.6% of patients developed anti-drug antibodies, which seems a little low. Another interesting point was that cancer developed in 7 patients on ustekinumab versus only 1 in the placebo group. And considering that this is 900 patients over a year, that seems like a lot of cancer. But anyway, ustekinumab works better than placebo for moderate to severe ulcerative colitis. Moving on to the second study, this one was much more interesting to me. It compared adalimumab versus vedolizumab for moderate to severe ulcerative colitis. Here, the authors looked at about 760 patients who got vedo versus adalimumab, and jumping to conclusions, 52 weeks, 31% of vedo patients achieved clinical remission versus 22.5% of adalimumab patients. Corticosteroid-free remission was achieved in 12% of VEDO patients versus 21.8% of adalimumab patients. So with vedolizumab, more clinical remission but less corticosteroid-free remission? Very strange. For adalimumab, the numbers were about the same, or 22%, which is pretty much what we see in the clinic as well. About 1 in 5 patients responds very well to Humira. The rest kind of linger. So now come more of my feelings on this article. What's more important, and what exactly is the point of clinical remission if it requires more steroids? Isn't the whole point of these drugs to avoid steroids? Very confusing. This was not the only interesting part of the study. Several additional thoughts. 1. I feel that this trial was designed to have betalizumab succeed, and it did an okay job of doing this. There was no dose escalation or adjustment in the era of everybody screaming therapeutic drug monitoring from the rooftops. It just seems odd. 2. Also, something like a quarter of the patients were exposed to anti-TNFs in the past. This definitely biased the study towards VEDO again, but somehow the authors tried to turn this around by simply saying that this is not so. I mean, there are plenty of treatment-naive patients out there, aren't there? Why not just make this a clean study? 3. Adlimumab is off-patent, so no wonder the makers of vedolizumab are interested in making this trial succeed. And four, why not compare Vedo to Remicade, infusion versus infusion, apples to apples. And that is all I have to say about that. Thanks again for listening to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast. Please don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. By the way, at the end of October, I will be at the ACG in San Antonio, Texas. So if you want to say hi or meet up, Hit me up on Twitter or send me an email at info at gipearls.com. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.